Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. All right, if you guys want to turn to John 17. Finger hurts. Verses 20 to 26. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Today we are going to be ending the high priestly prayer. We've been working through the past four weeks, well five weeks if you count Father's Day. This will be our fourth message through John 17. And today what we are going to focus on is the incredible truth, amazing truth, that Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for you. And if anyone is that you want praying for you, it'd be Jesus, right? He prays for you. So we're going to hear my baby out there. <laughs> That's a good thing, baby. Yes. Um, John 17, verses 20 to 26. Let's go ahead and read this together, and we're going to dive in. I don't really have an intro today. I didn't feel like making one up, so we're just going to jump in. This is what it says. I do not ask for these only. So Jesus is praying for his disciples. Now he's saying, I don't ask, I'm not praying just for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's me, that's you, that's the church. Okay? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I with them. This is the high priestly prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus prays um, between the upper room discourse, which starts in John 13, and goes through John 16, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's about to happen in John 18, which is his passion, otherwise known as his crucifixion, and then the resurrection that comes. Jesus prays in John 17. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and now he prays for you. Now he prays for you, he prays for the church. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also those who believe in me through their word. We are the church, the people that have believed in Jesus through the word of the disciples who were faithful in the book of Acts to preach the message to their own detriment, to their own death, in most cases, for these guys. And so we have believed and we have been saved and Jesus prays for us. What we're going to see today is two things that Jesus prays for. He prays for the church, that the church would be unified, and then he prays for the church, that the church would be glorified. The church unified, and then the church glorified. And I don't want you to miss how profound this is and how outstanding it is that Jesus prays for you. And he doesn't pray for you like you pray for others. 
How often does someone come with a prayer request? They say, pray for me, because I got this thing going on. And you say, I will pray for you. And then what's the first thing you do? Not pray for them, right? And then you forget, and then you never actually pray for them. What I will do, this is what I do. If, I, if someone asks me to pray for them, I pray for them on the spot. I pray for them right there. Because you know what? I'm probably going to forget. That's just not because not, I don't love you. I love you. I'm probably just going to forget. So I'm going to pray for you right now. And then if you do that in a public place, that's cool, right? Like me and Ed uh, got coffee on Thursday. I don't think we prayed there. But just to pray, to do that, that's what we do, right? And even here. Jesus prays for us. He's our intercessor. That's what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. He's at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us right now. In James chapter 5, 16, it says this, uh, the second half of the verse here, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Maybe you know it says, availeth much. Can you imagine how much more effective Jesus' prayers are for you if a righteous man and a righteous woman's prayer is effective? Can you imagine how much more effective the righteous man's prayers are are for you. This is outstanding that Jesus prays for us. And I want to, before we actually get into the, the text, uh, the, the points here, I just want to just see one more thing that I think is really neat. Okay? Jesus prays with the end in mind. Jesus prays with the end in mind. He prays, again, I'll just read it. I do not ask these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The disciples are still with Jesus. The disciples haven't gone out yet. They haven't preached the gospel yet. In fact, Peter hasn't denied Jesus yet, right? Peter hasn't denied Jesus yet. No one has believed through them yet. Heck, Jesus, has, Jesus hasn't even been crucified and resurrected yet. They don't even have a word, really, the word, the gospel, to give but he prays as if all of these things have already happened. I pray for those who will believe in me through their word. He prays as if God is actually going to keep the promise of his word. That God is actually going to establish his church on the confession of the gospel. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus prays with the end in mind. It's outstanding to me. We need to pray like Jesus, right? We need to pray actually believing that God is going to answer these prayers, not because we prayed really, really hard, but because he's true to his word. We need to pray like the persistent widow, the, the parable there, who demanded justice over and over and over and over and over again, and she got it. This is how we are called to pray, persistently believing that God will accomplish what he said that he will do. Whenever we pray like this, our ifs turn into wins. It's not God if you do this, but God when you do this. God when you meet this need. God when you answer this prayer. God when you show up in this situation. And it's not us speaking things into existence. That's health, wealth, prosperity, gospel. That's trash, okay? Don't believe that. It's taking God at his word. It's believing what God himself has already spoken. This has been a very important truth for me that I have had to believe in, to pray like Jesus here with the end in mind, especially early on in the ministry of our church. It's hard starting a church, right? Especially up here 
where, um, you know, people don't know Jesus. It's hard starting a church. And it's very discouraging. It's very difficult. There's a passage in Acts chapter 18 that the Lord used in my life in verses 9 and 10 that helped me pray with the end in mind. This is Paul who's wearied in ministry. He's in Corinth. If you read 1 Corinthians, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians, maybe 2 Corinthians, he says that he was wearied, wearied to the point of death. So wearied was he doing ministry in Corinth that he didn't know if he was going to actually just make it out of there. And then this is what happens. In verse 9, it says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, while Paul is ministering in Corinth, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. That is a good word. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I, have, for I am with you, Emmanuel, God with us. That's his name, right? I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, Lord, there are many in this city, there are many in this town of Gorm who are your people that don't know it yet. And I don't know it yet, but i got to pray with the end in mind. i got to pray believing that this is true. This was essential. You have to see what is not there, believing that it will eventually be there. And there were times, especially whenever COVID hit, and we had basically Ed and Sue and Chris and Paul, and that was it, right, and then my family. We were having kids just to build the church, right? Like, that was our strategy, right? That's the only thing I, I had control over, right? That's the, the best church planning strategy, church growth strategy, just have a bunch of kids, right? But obviously, Hannah's going to throw in the towel at some point. That wasn't a workable strategy <laughs> over the long run. It's terrible. Uh, you had to pray. You have to pray with the end in mind, you have to see what is not there, believing that it will be. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Father, not for these only, but those who will believe through their word. And it's not because I'm the most amazing or talented person in the world, or you're the most amazing and talented person in the world. It's because God is faithful to his word. And so just as Jesus prays for a church that doesn't even exist yet, but has at the same time always existed, we too must pray. Because the word of the Lord never fails. Never fails. And so that's just, that's just the first thing that I saw from Jesus praying for us. There's probably a lot more there too. Okay? Now, what does he pray for? What does Jesus pray for? And this is so important to me, again, because I have the mind of Jesus here. Right? I have the mind of Christ here. I am brought into, I mean, think about in the Old Testament, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies to meet with God on the Day of Atonement. No one gets to be in there, just the high priest, just the Father with, with Yahweh, okay? We get a picture of that's similar or even more intimacy of Jesus going in and meeting with the Father in prayer. Can you imagine a more intimate, more divine moment that we get to see what the Son comes to the Father to petition Him for? Can you imagine how deep 
this is, that we get to peer into the heart of Jesus at this time, right before he's crucified, right before he's killed, at his last moments, and he wants to pray for me. And he wants to pray for you. What does he want the Father most to answer in these last moments? What does he pray for? He prays for our unity, the church unified, and he prays that we would be glorified. That's what he prays for, okay? That's what he prays for. What we're going to look at first is the unity, the church unified. This is what it says in verse 21 to 23. It says that they may all be one, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So two verses, two prayers for unity, and he's not done yet, verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. It's, it's fairly wordy, but I think we get his point, right? Jesus using the same words over and over again, really pressing to, into his desire that we would be united. And so there's three aspects of this unity that I want to look at, okay? First, the type of unity, the type of unity that we have. Second, the reason for unity, why are we united? And then third, the source of our unity, what unites us? The type of unity we have is a Trinitarian unity. There's one God, exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is the confession of our understanding of who God is from the Bible. Okay? You, you gotta, you have, if, you wanna, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in God, if you believe the Bible, you've got to believe that. Okay? You have to believe that. Okay? Jesus prays that we would be together as he is with his own Father. That is crazy because Jesus has been united with the Father for all time, perfectly united in purpose, in will, in desire, perfectly united from the beginning of time, before time was even there. He says, before the foundation of the world, if you keep reading down to the end of time, there's been no argument between Father and Son, right? No argument. They're like right there all the time. That's how Jesus prays that we would be with each other. It's a very lofty goal, a very high goal. Not that we argue with each other, right? Not that churches ever have issues amongst themselves. Jesus prays that we would be united. This is a theme in the book of John. John 5, verse 19, the unity of the Father and the Son. This is something that I never really noticed. I've, I've read John, but I've, you know, preaching through John, I missed the utter unity and, per, and you know, um, connection in, in mind between the Father and the Son um, that John points out to us, that the Son came to accomplish the will of the Father. It says this in John 5, verse 19. Truly, truly, Jesus is talking with the Pharisee. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees didn't like that, and now he's arguing with them. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Unity of Father and Son. Whatever 
the fa- the, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus only does what His Father tells Him to do. His Father told Him to come to this earth and not lose any that were given to Him. That's exactly what He did. Jesus came to accomplish the will of the Father connected unity. Keep going down, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. We are judged based on whether we confess and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The judgment comes down to what are you going to do with this guy? What are you going to do with this man? He's given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them, who sent him. To honor Jesus is to honor God. To to dishonor Jesus is to dishonor God. You can't say you love God and deny Jesus. That's what he's saying. They're a package deal, right? Whenever I married Hannah, Abram was there. They were a package deal. I got both of them, right? Jesus, the Father, and the Son are a package deal. And that was the whole problem. Because the Pharisees, they said they loved God, but they hated Jesus. That was the whole problem. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and so they wanted to kill him. John 5, 18. If you ever, you know, if you ever ask this question, why do they want to kill Jesus? Why do they want to put him to death? Here's the answer, okay? This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Making himself equal with God. The fundamental confession of the church is that Jesus is indeed equal with God. He is God in the flesh. And why am I going on and on about this? This unity that the Father has with the Son serves as the template of our own unity as the church. This is Jesus' prayer prompt for us. Okay? It's crazy. He prays that the oneness that he enjoys with the Father would be true of us. So we can't understand church unity without understanding the deep things of Jesus. We cannot understand what it means to be united together without understanding Jesus as the perfect Son of God, perfectly united with the Father. But as we grow deeper into Him, we're able to go deeper into each other. Okay? Unity. Now, why are we united? Why are we united? Let's go back to John 17, it says this in verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may believe you have sent me. We are united for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the sending of the Son who preached the message for God so loved the world he sent his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We're united for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the world to know and to love Jesus. That's why. What is so interesting to me as we were starting out this church and just thinking about the church in general, what we're talking about here is mission statements. What's the mission statement? Okay, why does the church exist? What does the church exist? And whenever we were starting out, 
um, as a part of our training, we have to develop a mission statement. What are we here for? What are we here to do? Businesses and organizations labor over their mission statement. We exist to do X, Y, and Z. Crafting, refining to express exactly why they exist and what they hope to accomplish, their mission. This is Amazon's mission statement, okay? To be the Earth's, the Earth's, that's not the world, the Earth's most customer-centric company where customers can find and discover anything they might want to buy online and endeavors to offer its customers the lowest possible prices. Judging by the number of Amazon boxes that come to my house, most without my name on them, most with my wife's name on them, I'd say they're knocking it out of the park, right? <laughs> they're, they're hitting their mission statement, for sure. You know, Jeff Bezos, I don't know if he's the richest man in the world, but he's top two or three. Um, they're knocking it out. They are successful, okay? Great mission statement. What about the church? What is our mission statement? Do we have to craft a mission statement? Whenever I, you know, it was um, going through the training and sitting down and thinking, the mission statement, is that something that I'm just coming up with myself, right? No. What's so unique about the church, the organization of the church, is that we don't create our mission statement like other organizations or businesses do. Why? Because God did. God creates the mission statement. And that mission is to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, baptizing and discipling all those who will believe. And so our mission statement to help others know, love, and follow Jesus is just rehashing Matthew 28, 18-20, the great commission of preaching the gospel. That's all it is. We don't create the mission. We're given the mission. We're united for the sake of the mission. And the mission is the gospel so that the world will believe. And so what that means, and I have to go back to this all the time, Everything we do as a church has to be filtered through that mission. How does this help accomplish the mission? How does this help accomplish? From outreaches to small groups to kids' ministries to finances to everything, how does this accomplish the mission? It's something I ask myself a lot, right? Why do we do what we do? Because we've always done it that way? Is, there, is it accomplishing what Jesus has put us here? Are we actually accomplishing the mission we thought about that, um, like with our Easter outreach. Spent a lot of money on that. I don't know if you guys know that. That was not a cheap thing to do. Connected with a lot of people. A lot of families came in here. We didn't see anyone on Easter the next day. So the question, is this accomplishing the mission? Now, maybe it is, maybe it's not. I don't really know yet. It's something I need to think about, something that pray about something we'll bring to the church and think about for next year. But what it does is establish the principle, anything's on the table to either bring on or take off if it's not accomplishing the mission. We think about small groups. We gather together as small groups, and that's great. We're discipling. That's accomplishing the mission. But are we accomplishing the mission of outreach, of connecting, of the lost hearing the gospel. Maybe they believe, maybe they, not, they, they won't believe. That's not up to us. It's up to us to speak it. Are we accomplishing the mission? Are we accomplishing 
the mission, because that's why Jesus brought us together. That's what he prays for. So, the type of unity, Trinitarian unity. The mission of our unity, why we're united the gospel. And then finally, the source of our unity. The source of our unity, what unites us, is the glory of God. We see this in verse 22. This is what Jesus says. And we're going to go fairly deep here. It says, the glory, Jesus again, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So we're going to be one because Jesus has given him the glory that he has received from the Father. What unites us? The glory of God. It's a very curious statement. Jesus has given us, the church, the glory that he himself has received from the Father. And it's this same glory that is uniting us. Okay? What is this? How, do, how does this work? Okay? Let's break this down a little bit. The first thing we're going to discuss is the Father has given glory to the Son. What does that mean? What does that mean? We're going to go a little deep. Hold on. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you can turn there if you want to. We're going to be there eventually. The Apostle Paul is explaining to the church in Corinth the new covenant that God has made with us through Jesus. Okay, so this is the Father giving glory to the Son. How does that happen? Okay, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is explaining the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. It's much different than the old covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two parties. An agreement between two parties with terms that are clearly defined, that define the relationship. Me and my wife have entered into a marriage covenant, best day of her life. Um, in that marriage covenant, no one laughed at that. In, in that marriage covenant, I and her have made an agreement to love each other through sickness and in death, you know, all that good stuff. We're going to keep up our end of the bargain there, right? Amen, okay? God has made a covenant with us. In the old covenant, God made, um, God had a relationship with Israel. And this covenant, this agreement between God and Israel was mediated by a few things, most importantly, the law. God gave Moses his law, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. He's got the Ten Commandments there. He finds them worshiping a calf. He's like, you don't need to do that. You need to worship the one true God. It was the law that was going to mediate the relationship between a sinful Israel, jacked up nation, okay, and a holy, righteous God. How can a sinful, messed up people have a relationship with a holy, righteous God if that holy, righteous God has to judge these people and the judgment of sin is death. How is that going to be mediated? Well, God gives his law. And the law is the righteous representation of who God is. You know, he, he gives this law. He says, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. Don't do any of this stuff because I am a holy God. And Israel gets the law. Now they know how to live with a holy, righteous God. And so they try to keep the law. There's an issue, though. What's the issue? They can't keep the law, right? God says, don't lie. What's the first thing I do? Lie, right? You tell your kid, hey, don't do that. What's the first thing they do? They go and do the very thing that you told them not to do, right? 
So what does God do? He gives them a sacrificial system. The, the, the broke, like if you break the law, death comes. So now instead of you dying, the sheep dies, this goat dies, a pigeon dies. There's a lot of blood in the Old Testament, okay? A lot of blood. And let me just say this. You've got to read the Old Testament. You have to know the Old Testament. If you don't know the Old Testament, you're not going to know Jesus. That's just the truth of it, okay? So, God has this old, this old covenant, this old agreement. He has the law. They, say, they see the law, but the law had a problem. It led to death. Israel could not keep the law. They failed time and time and time and time again because they were sinners. They kept failing. Their sin seized the law, and they messed up. That's the old covenant. But now, God has started a new covenant, a new agreement. He has sent Jesus to us. In Jesus, God created a new covenant where now he no longer deals with us according to our sin, but he deals with us according to his son. If he dealt with us according to his sin and our breaking of his law, we would all perish. But now he deals with us according to his son, who has perfectly kept the law. Therefore now, I'm not earning salvation. I'm not earning right standing with God based on my works, based on being a good person person. That's not the agreement. Now, I have salvation purely through Christ Jesus. Trusting in Him, turning from my sin, placing my faith in Him, so that now, whenever God sees me, He does not see a lawbreaker. He sees a righteous son and a righteous daughter who is given the righteousness of Jesus. It's called an alien righteousness. A righteousness I have not deserved, given to me through Jesus. Jesus is the terms of the new covenant. Jesus is the terms of the new covenant. He does not deal with me according to what my sin deserves. He deals with me according to the perfections of his Son in whom I have believed. Not only did Jesus give me his perfect righteousness, but he also suffered the death that I deserved on the cross. Right? He saved me from my own, not even my, he saved me from my unrighteousness and my own righteousness, as if I was going to be made right with God by being a good person. Whenever I have totally failed, Jesus did it all. That's the new covenant. That's the new covenant. And this is glorious. The Father has given glory to the Son. The Son has come and done away with the old covenant and ushered in the new covenant. And it says in John 1 verse 14 that we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Father has given glory to the Son. So let's actually read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and show you where we, where we see this. This is what it says starting in verse 6. To verse 11. God, who, God is that who, has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The old covenant to the new covenant, not of the letter of the law that killed us. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. New covenant in Jesus. The new agreement with God. Now, if the ministry of death... This is the Old Covenant. Carved in letters of stone, think Moses, Ten Commandments, came with such a glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. 
which is being brought to an end. So it's not like the old covenant was evil or wrong. It was glorious. Moses would meet with God in the tent of meeting outside of the camp, and they come back, his face is shining. If that old covenant was glorious, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Will not the new covenant be even greater? The fact that we have Jesus, and that is our mediator? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the old covenant, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in its glory. The, the glory of Jesus is even more glorious. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it, the glory of the new covenant surpassing the old. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And again we say, the Father has given glory to the Son. Because in the Father giving glory to the Son, now God can make the unrighteous righteous. In the Father giving glory to the Son, now God can take rebels to his name and orphans to his name and turn them into sons and daughters. He can take Gentiles in the flesh. He can take people so far away from God who have no idea who he is, no idea what he wants from us, who are estranged in every way possible, he can come and make us his own through his son. I was uh, recently, with all the Roe v. Wade stuff, I got into an argument with someone on Facebook, which is the best place for arguments, right? And uh, I wasn't planning on saying this, but we're going for it. Um... And the guy, the guy said, um, I said, you know, praise God that the wrongs were, of the last 49 years had been righted. And he commented, you know, hopefully the Supreme Court can right the greatest wrong that's ever existed, and that's the wrong of religion, okay? And I said, well, you know, the Supreme Court can't right those wrongs, but Jesus can. Jesus can right the wrongs of religion, right? And my point was this, that in religion... Whenever you're trying to earn salvation, whenever you're trying to make yourself right with God, this old way of relating to God, it's all on you. And it's not about God, it's about you being the person. But what Jesus comes is it does away with all of that, and now we have direct access to the Father through this one man, through repentance and faith. Everything goes away. It's what am I going to do with Jesus? It's all about Him. It's all about Him. The Father has given glory to the Son, and people don't know that. This man I'm chatting with on Facebook, he doesn't know that. And I wonder how he even took my comment. I wasn't trying to be rude. I wasn't trying to be snarky. I was trying to open up his eyes to the greater glory of Jesus, something that he probably has no idea about. The Son is glorious. The fact that He can make the unrighteous righteous through His Son now, Jesus has given us this glory. How has he done that? Well, if you keep going on to verse 18, it says this. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding this glory, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We receive the glory of Jesus because we receive Jesus and now we participate in that because he is making us into the image. 
This is what unites us. We have received this glory because we have believed in it, being transformed by it. The glory of God that he could take us, even us, and make us into his own son and daughters. To take ruined sinners and reclaim them so that they would say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is us receiving that glory. So that whenever people outside of this place come and see the testimony of God's goodness, the testimony of God's power, they say only God could do that. Only God could change a life like that. And he gets the glory. This is what unites us. And this is what's so hard for churches because it's the question, whose glory are we living for? That's the daily fight. That's the daily fight every single day. Not even in the church, but in you. Who gets the glory? Whose name gets to be the biggest name? I think about it like this. Who's the biggest guy in the room? Is it me? No. It's Jesus. He gets the glory. And this is what happens. If a church and a people are really connected and really united in that, and that changes a town, it changes families, it changes communities, it changes sinners. We see God working, but it's only if united for His glory. And I tell you, a lot of times, I'm, I think, I'm, re- I'm about God's glory, but if I'm being honest, I'm not. I want you guys to like me. I want my sermon to really hit hard and really, you know, all this stuff. It's like, and that's not a bad thing. But where is our motivation? We united for the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. You can't change you. Only God can change you. And that's glorious. The church then is the radiance of God's glory here on earth. And the source of our unity is this glory. But as radiant as this glory is, as beautiful as it is, it's just a small taste of the greater glory to come. And this brings us to our second and final point. Jesus prays that the church would be unified, and then finally the church would be glorified. The church would be glorified. And we'll close with this point. It's what it says in John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. A righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus prays that we would be with them to see his glory, that they may be with me where I am. They may be with me where I am. He's talking about heaven, right? Where is Jesus? He's in heaven. And what is heaven? It is beholding the glory of the Lord. This word see that Jesus says to see my glory isn't just like seeing with the eyes. What it describes is an entering into an experience the fullness of experience of my glory, that we are wrapped in and immersed into the glory of Christ. We talked about heaven in prior messages, and, you know, we think about heaven as a big family reunion, and prayerfully it will be a big family reunion, but that's not what heaven is. That's not what heaven is. Heaven is the fullness of God's relationship with you, fully realized, full communion with God. 
That's what heaven is. And that's what Jesus prays, that we could be with him to see his glory. Continuing on, he says this, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We see the connection between love and glory. That the glory that Jesus is praying for is the eternal glory of the God for the Son. That Jesus wants us to experience the unending love of God. We get a taste of that here, but can you imagine the fullness of that in heaven? The church glorified. Peter has a story of this that I'm going to read from 2 Peter chapter 1. It's the story of the transfiguration where Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the top of a mountain and there was trans- he was transfigured before them, shining brilliantly in the night sky. This is, this, this is the story. For we did not follow cleverly de- devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter saw the glory of Jesus in a way that no one else had seen it. And what I love about this story is that we think about Jesus as a Middle Eastern man. The transfiguration is actually what Jesus looks like. Okay? 17. For when he received, Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, He received glory from the glorious one, from God, as God declares his love for the Son. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we are with him on the holy mountain. What is outstanding is that that same love that that God the Father expresses for the Son is the same love that this Father has for me and for you. It says, going back to John 17, at the very end, in verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them. Question. Question. Does the Father love Jesus more than he loves you? Have you thought about that question before? Interesting question. Does God love you less than he loves Jesus? Does God love you less than he loves some other person? The Apostle Paul. He probably, I'm sure he loves my wife more than he loves me. Everyone does, right? Does God love you less than he loves Jesus? The answer is no. The answer is no. There is no less to God's love. The same love that the Father has for the Son is the same love that he has for the church. That's what Jesus prays for. That the love with which you loved me may be in them. And I'm telling you that the church is glorified whenever we stand and step fully into that love with no sin, no death, no destruction, nothing of this earth. It's all gone away. Jesus prays that the church would be glorified that we would step into the fullness of this love. He loves you with the same love that he has for his own son. Why do you think he sent him to die? It is an outstanding prayer that we have from Jesus here. It's a very deep prayer 
And I want to go deep because that is the depth of Jesus. As we go deeper into him, we understand a deeper love from him, the depths of God's affection for us, the church. It's incredible. It's outstanding. We have to have it. Understanding the future promise of glory, we have to be united in proclaiming it. May the prayer of Jesus be true for us, that we're united for the sake of the gospel, that we're united for the sake of his glory, that we're united with a hope for the future, that whatever happens on this earth, the end of it is love. And let's bring as many people as possible to that love on the other side. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for this prayer. I want to thank you for... For it all, Lord, I, 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 I would never know you had you not come and done what you did. I would have never known the salvation. I would have never known the love of God. I would have never known anything about you had you not come and done what you did. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 3, that those who are far off have been brought near by Christ Jesus. That we were aliens, Lord, and strangers to the covenant of promise. But those who have been far off have been brought near. And not because, not because they did it, but because you did it. And Lord, may we, the fullness of that, just, may we really believe that and know it and, and believe it in a way that we live different lives. May your spirit come and help us to live different lives because of it. So I pray for this church that we would be unified in that boldness to speak, boldness to proclaim for the sake of the lost in this, in this town and our, our neighbors or communities, that they would be brought in with us so that they would join us for the second half of the prayer in glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this word. We thank you for your power and your presence with us. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. Forgive us of our sins and, and just wrap your arms around us that we would feel it, Lord. Oh, we love you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.